You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author whose mission is to help people achieve a deeper connection with their horses through his transformational training program. Just because he knows that you know. G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and today I have a, a special guest on here. Today I have a lady named Sarah Schlotty and she is a trauma therapist from Canada who does both trauma work with horses and humans and she has a website called Equisoma that has a really really good blog on there and my first introduction to Sarah was reading one of her blogs one time and it really really struck me as uh, so important to know and the blog was called One Trick Pony a therapist view on horse training and she basically talks about why people choose a particular training method, choose one over another. And a lot of it comes back to our life experiences, our, all the things we've had happen to us, our trauma, all of that sort of stuff. I'm going to, before we get her on the line here, I'm going to read you a part of that blog because I found this is fascinating. She had just been in this blog, she had just been talking about how you know, there's different ways of working with, with trauma and stuff like that, you know, human type uh, trauma recovery. <clears throat> but then she says, what's important to note is the following. Just as the human psychological field recognizes the limits of a strictly behavioral view and understanding and treating the complexity of trauma, so too is there increasing need to shift beyond traditional and even behavioral models of horse training to add in modern innovations that are based in psychophysiology, polyvagal theory, and you've heard me talk about polyvagal theory, attachment theory, somatics, bodywork, and other concepts. This is not to say that learning theory does not have a place in working with horses. In fact, the opposite's true. A foundation in learning theory is how of how and when to apply positive and negative reinforcement is necessary, as is recognizing there's more going on than just classical and operant conditioning. And yet, what most commonly happens is that rather than exploring the virtues of integrating multiple approaches to horse training, equine professionals and horse owners commonly pick one camp and exclude all others. Slings and arrows are thrown from all sides, each claiming their way is better. Ivory towers, political polarizations and guru culture abound. In reality, having more than one tool in the toolkit is immensely helpful, as is knowing the limits of different methods as well as their strengths and when to use each one. For instance... Positive and negative reinforcement can be done well or unskillfully. Positive reinforcement can be used to control can be used to control and induce anxiety, agitation, or food-related aggression in response to treat-seeking for beha specific behaviours. Negative reinforcement, which is pressure and release, can be used to control and induce flooding and learned helplessness. The timing of each is important, as is recognised on the horse and the human's threshold of tolerance, nervous state systems nervous system state, sorry, and attachment patterns. She goes on to say, what past experiences contribute to black and white thinking about horse training methods? What adversity has shaped people to become polarized as opposed to seeing the shades of gray? For instance, for those who look down on negative reinforcement and exclusively rely on positive reinforcement, 
have past negative experience led to unresolved charge around, resaving, re, uh, around raising your energy and pressure, resulting avoiding anything that could be perceived as negative? Is there a fear of becoming or being perceived as violent or not recognizing the difference between pressure and abuse, not recognizing the difference between assertion and aggression, not recognizing the difference between anger and intensity, or fear of connecting with the bound activation related to incomplete fight responses, or appeasement behaviors such as being nice, the safest option at any time in the past instead of mobilizing fight or flight energy, which were deemed impossible, unsafe, or were punished. And this is childhood stuff. Were you taught that being assertive was bad or even that feeling angry was bad? So that's for the people who look down on negative reinforcement and rely pos exclusively on positive reinforcement. There's a possibility that that's in your past. Now, for those who look down on positive reinforcement and rely exclusively on negative reinforcement and positive, positive punishment, have past negative experiences led to seeing dominance, authority and discipline through force and obedience as the only way to experience respect? or has a lack of empathy, appreciation, praise, or emotional support from parents or caregivers resulted in a tendency to dismiss the validity of these needs in yourself and others? Were fighting and freeze responses, so disconnecting from emotions and closeness, the safest options in the past where social engagement was deemed unsafe or uncomfortable in any way? Does it feel safer for you to feel hardened and detached as opposed to vulnerable? Do you inter so interpret softness as weakness? So you're kind of getting the idea of the questions this lady asks. I mean, she's pretty darn deep. But when I read that right there, I'm like, yeah, I, I see quite a bit of me in that, you know, I used to rely exclusively on, on negative reinforcement. And it's still a, a large part of what I do. But, um, yeah, I can see some parts of, of me in there too. So this, this stuff really makes you take a look at yourself and really decide or really look at why you know look at why you choose to train your horse the way you choose them not that any ways you know right or wrong but i think the traumas that we bring to the whole horse human relationship can have a big a big impact on how you go about stuff so i'll get sarah on the line here and uh, we'll unravel some of this very very interesting topic Sarah, welcome to the Journey On podcast. Nice to see you again, Warwick. Good to see you too. It's been a while. Has been. I think it's what was what last summer when we last did this. Yeah, well, I did. I did a. Uh, it was a. Ended up being on YouTube, wasn't it? Yeah. On, on your YouTube channel. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So before we get started here, why don't you tell us exactly what you? Not what you are. <laughs> That's not a good way of putting it. What what your qualifications are? What what? Yeah, let's go with that. Let's start with that. Gosh, well, um, I'm a human first and foremost. And as a human, I find uh, our relationships with ourselves and with the natural world inherently fascinating. And I have become uh, quite well known for being a very science-oriented individual, but a lot of people don't know this about me. Um, that I'm actually a pretty spiritual person as well, and uh, both sides of me are equally alive, even though I've made a name for myself more in the neuroscience world. So my scope of practice is largely as a registered psychotherapist. I work in the area of trauma recovery, 
Um, and I have been in private practice for about 10 years. Recently moved away to start working with an Indigenous community uh, in looking at healing and wellness programs involving horses and um, Indigenous traditions and a return to the land and a reclaiming of um, horsemanship in what I'm calling decolonizing horsemanship. And maybe we'll get to that at some point. Um, but people often know me as the trauma-informed lady. <laughs> uh, and so I've, I've done a lot of teaching and, and presentations around trauma-informed care, both in the human-to-human -human sphere, but also in um, the human-to-non-human -human animal sphere as well. Um, and largely with horses, though, certainly um, other animals too. Yeah, that's what was that originally attracted me to what you were doing was I forget what it was I first read by you um, on your Equisoma website. Mm -hmm. But in the intro to this, I talked about the the blog you did about the, the, tr the uh, I forget what it was called, you know, like a, a therapist lens on why you train the way you train. And I think that's a conversation that really, really needs to be had mm -hmm. in all horse circles, we'll start here on my podcast, but I think sure. that's a conversation that people really need to hear about because, uh, I mean, I, you know, I've been training horses for 30 years and until I read that, I didn't actually ever consider the, the deeper, um, not necessarily ramifications, but the, the origin of why you pursue a certain way of dealing with, with, with horses and what attracts you to it and why, why you might, um, say reject a different way of doing it. Can you talk about that a little or a lot? <laughs> Happy to work. <laughs> um, so, uh, I think I'll back up and just give a metaphor as a starting place. So I like the metaphor of a bike chain. You know, and we've all got bike chains in many area of areas of our lives. And sometimes our bike chains, the, the different links of the bike chain are kind of rusty. Sometimes a link is missing. Sometimes a link is broken. And our bike chain doesn't run super smoothly. And part of our work, I think, is to get more familiar with our bike chain, what precedes the link that just happened. Um, and and can, we, can we look at the link before that and the link before that and the link before that? And when I think about your question about horse training, it's like, what leads us to pick the horse training methods that we do? There's a bike chain there. You know, we often think about the end result. You know, I do this, this is the method I choose, this is the method I use, and this is what I ascribe to or align with. But the rest of the bike chain isn't there. Like, what, what precedes that and precedes that and precedes that? And if we're not paying attention to all the links in our bike chain, we can have a pretty bumpy ride. And so that blog post in particular speaks a little bit to, you know, what are, in what uh, the behaviorist field talks about antecedents, like what is the thing that precedes the thing, right? And uh, in somatic experiencing, we call that a prodromal or a pre-prodromal, like in medicine, we'll talk about the prodromal, which is the thing that occurred before the symptom. And so the pre-prodromal is like the symptom, the, the pre-symptom before the symptom. So if we back things up, it's like, okay, well, what led to the selection of that training methodology? What, what shaped you to be that particular way in relationships? Because horse training isn't just a set of methods that we use to get the job done. I mean, horse training is inherently about a relationship, ideally, at least I'd like to think so. And in my own mind, 
I look at good horse trainers, good horse behaviorists, good equine behavior consultants, whatever you want to call them, good clicker trainers, whatever your method happens to be, I, I think a good human who's doing good work in that area is kind of like a good psychotherapist, right? Our job is to go in there and get curious about the bike chain and the links that make up the bike chain and how can we ensure a smoother ride for all involved, you know? And if we're not looking at our role in the utilization of that bike chain, if we're not paying attention to our own bike chain, you know, we can get caught, you know, we can get caught up in what's going on and inadvertently um, move some things along that maybe are not optimal because they reflect our own upbringing, they reflect our own traumas, our own attachment style, and, and so on. And, and this is sort of what's happening in the work that I'm doing right now in a, in a very specific Indigenous community. Uh, and before we continue work, I, I just wanted to give a bit of a land acknowledgement. Because I'm not at liberty to disclose the community that I'm working for right now, I do want to acknowledge that I am on their territory as I sit here and talk with you today. So I just wanted to sort of make that known, even though I can't specifically name the community I'm working for and with. Um, but I do want to acknowledge that I am on their land and I'm, uh, I'm here now as a, as a part steward of, of that land and I recognize that I'm here as a guest and so uh, I wanted to name that off to start. Um, but this theme of what we carry forward also shows up in what I'm working on now, my, this sort of current project of mine, which is about decolonizing horsemanship. You know, what was learned from Indigenous communities as a result of having to survive as white settlers came in what was adopted as horsemanship techniques post-contact and what has been brought forward that may or may not represent indigenous values, but that were adopted for survival reasons, for living in a now white culture. And how can we decolonize that? How can we check out that bike chain and go, okay, does this match what I want moving forward? Similar to horsemanship training, does do the, the, the methods that I have selected, do they reflect what I truly believe and what I want? Or are they leftovers from a previous set of experiences or a previous time that might actually reflect trauma response more than, more than anything else? So, so these, these pieces all sort of come together. So I'm glad you started us off there at work. I think that's a pretty rich, rich topic. Yeah, maybe if you can go a bit deeper into, so I, I, I in the introduction, I, I read the two mm -hmm. different, if you are just a negative reinforcement, only negative reinforcement yeah. and everything else is bunk, or you are only positive reinforcement and all negative reinforcement is abuse, can you maybe peel those apart a little bit more? Sure. Um, that particular blog post looks at a very particular link in that bike chain sequence, as I like to call it. So, so one of the hallmarks of trauma is very dichotomized thinking, very black and white thinking, right? Very polarized thinking can often be a very strong hallmark of trauma. It's like it was either this or that and never the twain shall meet and there is no middle ground. You know, it's, it's, that's just how trauma tends to manifest, especially the earlier our traumatic experiences, because there comes a point in all human development where um, we tend to fall into black and white thinking and absolutes as part of our brain development. I mean, that's just a known part of, of child development. And so if there's any kind of wounding that occurs at particular phases of our development, that can reflect as we get older. We see this a lot with what's going on in politics these days. 
you know, and so I'm not wanting to err into that whole category because that's a whole other topic. But um, if I think about the polarization between negative and positive reinforcement, you know, it's like we've got the negative reinforcement folks who look at the clicker trainers, the, uni the, the, the sort of specifically strictly clicker trainer group of people, and, and they might look at that as being mechanical and you're just, you know, bribing or, you know, like what you know, this is too soft and this is too airy-fairy and this is, you know, that, you know, you know, it just doesn't feel very realistic or it doesn't feel like it captures some of the pieces that do happen in horse herds because horses do use negative reinforcement with each other all the time. Um, and maybe we should define the terms perhaps for our audience before we continue. So negative and positive reinforcement don't refer to good versus bad or bad versus good. They're not evaluation terms, but negative reinforcement refers to the removal of something that's aversive in order to ensure a behavior continues. Um, and, the, and positive reinforcement is the adding of something desired as a reward for a behavior that we want to see continue. And so it's about additive versus subtractive uh, versus good instead of good versus bad. So I just wanted to name that. Um, and then we've got the clicker trainers who are strictly only clicker training or only positive reinforcement um, who kind of point the finger over at the negative reinforcement folks and go, well, you're all abusive and, you know, this is high stress and horses live in captivity and they already experience a lot of stress. And so we want to be decreasing their stress levels and there are ways to get the job done without having to use aversives. And so why shouldn't we be doing that? Um, and so, and then they might look at negative reinforcement folks and go, well, you know, what, what's led you to be so heavy handed, for instance. But that sort of think that assumes that all negative reinforcement is done abusively beyond threshold. And that assumes all clicker training is airy fairy and isn't recognizing nuances of relationship and it's only mechanistic, right? And so we've got this sort of dichotomizing happening. I think that's what you're referring to, Warwick. Did I yeah. explain that properly? Um, Perfectly well to me. Okay. But yeah, that's the. Uh, when I first read that, and I kind of alluded to this in the the intro, that it's like with the like with the purely negative reinforcement. The 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 things that would lead a person to only view things that way, I looked at that and went, mm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I can see. I can see quite a bit of me in, you know, my life experience in that, yeah. What were some of the things that you resonated with from that work, from that list of um, sort of the negative only? Because, you know, we know that you've been doing a lot of work in terms of your own horsemanship and your methods have changed, you know, tremendously as you've done your own sort of personal exploration, you know, hence this podcast series. Like what, what, did, what, what did you used to align with there, you know, and what's shifted, I guess? Oh, everything shifted, but, um, well, I suppose this is probably going to lead us into the path of polybagel theory, you know, sure. just growing up in the, in the, um, you know, the era that I grew up in and everybody else grew up in the same thing. So it's not, you know, that, you know, my parents were wonderful. They were doing what everybody else was doing, but mm. it was that era of, you know, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Totally. And, uh, the whole children should be seen, sorry, seen and not heard and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And it, it, it leads you to, you know, view the world uh, a certain way. And yeah, I, in that, you know, in that little paragraph that you had, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I, I see a bit of that with, and you got to do, you know, you got to do it without judgment of 
what happened. Mm-hmm. You're just recognizing what happened, not labeling it good or bad, but you lay, you, you're un- understanding why you are the way you are. That's right. Without, you know, it's nobody's fault, but it's, it's you know, I tell I, I probably haven't ever said this on the podcast. I've, I've, I've revealed a lot of stuff on the podcast, but I'm not sure I've actually got to this one. But um, I have talked about growing up as a male with a freeze response. Mm-hmm. You tend to have, you know, uh, uh, like some negative self-talk or some, a lot of negative self-talk about that. You know, you're supposed to be a man, you're supposed yeah. to be brave, you're supposed to be tough, you're supposed, all that sort of stuff. And it was yeah. during one of the conversations with you last year that you kind of urged me to look further back in my childhood because as far as I know, I had a perfect childhood. You know, I, you know, mum and dad mm-hmm. were, loved us and we were, they were home every night. There was no arguing, there's no drugs, there's no alcohol. I had a great time. And you were the one that urged me to look further back into stuff. And, and you know, I had read, I think we'd been talking about Peter Levine's uh, Waking the Tiger book. And, and he was saying, I read in there that early childhood uh, surgeries are often a, a key to trauma because you get strapped to a gurney and wheeled away from your caregivers by people wearing masks. And I'm like, nah, well, I had... I've had some surgery, but I don't think it was that young. And then you urged me to look into, and I knew that I'd had, uh, like, you know, airway problems when I was younger. I, I knew I'd had bronchitis quite a bit and I knew I had pneumonia sometimes. I just didn't know how many times I had pneumonia. And you were the one that urged me to ask, uh, mum, when I first had pneumonia Yeah. and my, and uh, my first hospitalization with pneumonia was when I was three months old. Yeah. And the second one, I think I was 11 months old, but I spent a week in hospital each of those two times. And it was the, you know, it was the old Catholic hospital with the very strict nuns and all that sort of stuff. And I'm not sure it was you or Jane Pike, but someone on the, someone I've spoken to said, well, the reason you have a freeze response is because at the time, you're in, you know, you feel like you're in danger. You don't, you know, your caregivers aren't there. And at three months old, you don't have access to fight or flight. You just have shutdown, right? You have, you'll have an intense amount of activation and we rely on our caregivers to co-regulate. Right, we what goes up in terms of our arousal or our activation, so to speak, comes down through social engagement. Comes down through us recruiting other nervous systems that have more regulatory capacity to bring that back down into a realm where we feel safe again. And and little infants that are left alone, left to cry, prolonged crying it out. I'm not talking about small doses, but we're talking like extreme, intense separations, intense periods of crying it out, um, intense amounts of fear. And it remember what's intense for a little young nervous system is quite different than what's intense for a grown up. Right. And so we're thinking about very, you know, premature uh, nervous systems that can be really, really overwhelming. And if you're already separated and isolated in a really um, 
sort of austere kind of environment where there isn't a lot of affection and you're isolated, plus you're having difficulty breathing. I mean, lack of oxygen flow, you know, sends the nervous system, all those are conditions that can send the nervous system into a dorsal vagal response, which is that shutdown response. So it can be early surgeries. We know a lot of men suffer a lot of early relational trauma because of circumcision. And so the earliest surgeries, we start to see a lot of rampant sort of toxic male socialization, shut down emotions. It's not just socialization in terms of the nurture portion of how we've raised men in Western society, but also early surgical experiences. But even beyond that, for some men who haven't experienced circumcision as an early state, um, this early experience of difficulty breathing, you know, can create very scary uh, experiences, which uh, Dr. Porges and Dr. Levine both call um, uh, immobility with fear, right? Where there's stillness and terror, right? It's like I can't breathe, and there's no one here to help me, and I have to do this alone. And that's a very overwhelming state for a little nervous system. And, and those early adaptations often involve just shutting down and not feeling. It's not always abuse. It's not always outright neglect. You know, people often don't realize that they carry around trauma in their bodies, you know, because like you, right? Like you said, well, I had a decent childhood and my parents got along well and, you know, we weren't harmed in those obvious ways. And so sometimes it shows up in these other ways. You know, and that can lead to shutdown. And then we start to see, you know, um, management strategies and self-selecting into various careers that are reinforcing for us. So I'll give an example of um, sort of, a, I've seen this happen many times in practice. I've known people in my personal life for whom this is true, um, colleagues for whom this is true. So this is just sort of generic information, but you can imagine um, a young boy who experiences sexual abuse in his family of origin, either by a parent or a sibling. Um, and the confusion around that experience and the sense of helplessness and powerlessness that comes from that. And the only way to combat the powerlessness is to find some way of finding agency. And I've known many men who, this isn't true for all men who do this, but um, for some male identified individuals who have turned to uh, intense sports or bodybuilding or uh, you know, ways of making their bodies find, feel strong or feel strength in order to overcome the early experiences of powerlessness and shutdown and shame. It feels a lot better to feel agency and strength in one's musculature than to feel the collapse response of something's happening to me that I am powerless to interrupt. And then we start to see people self-select into careers, like extreme bodybuilding or you know, sports careers or heck, even horse training. You know, I'm not saying this is the only cause, but I'm just sort of drawing out a potential bike chain here. Right here are some potential links that can line up, and then we start to see people self-select into specific methods, say of horse training or specific careers. Um, uh, Gabor Matei talks a lot about medical doctors and what they self-select into, why they self-select into medicine, you know, and and what's going on for many medical doctors in terms of you know um, what drives them psychologically in terms of early experiences, trauma psyche and so on you know and so we we have these early states and our personality shapes around these early experiences of threat and unsafety in the world and then we call that personality and then that sometimes gets reinforced into a profession and then we get really good at doing that profession but if we step back and it's like well hang on a second especially if that we're it, when we're in that profession it's so black and white and so dichotomized and so polarized usually that's the indicator if we go back in the bike chain there's something else playing out here
Right. And I heard you, I heard you breathing a lot, Warwick, hearing me say all that. I'm curious about what's happening for you right now. Uh, well, you know, one thing is I've never, okay, so I, I, for the most of my life, I had no idea that any of this stuff had affected me. And mm. for the most part, I didn't know that it happened. You know, I knew mm. I had pneumonia when I was a kid. Mm. Um, and then it was only talking to you last year. I've gone back and, you know, talked to mum and she told me when I had pneumonia and I also had it uh, before, just before I was five as well. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it explained to me why I had the, the shutdown state. Mm-hmm. But what I hadn't given, and, and I was thinking it was being away from my caregivers in this hospital with all these nasty old nuns. Yeah. But I didn't, I hadn't ever given any thought is the breathing. Mm-hmm. Like the almost, you know, the almost suffocating sort of thing. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I'd never thought of that too. You know, it's almost like being waterboarded or something or other. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's got a lot to do with it. But I had a, I had an epiphany here on the podcast one time I was talking, because I've always judged my, uh, my shutdown very negatively. Yeah. Like it was, I didn't want it. Uh, once I discovered what it was, uh, but talking to my friend Jane Pike, who's an equestrian mindset coach, yeah. and I was, she's really taken a deep dive into old stuff, uh, somatic uh, you know, she used to be kind of a, a top-down approach, you know, all thinking about it. Now she's getting really into the bottom-up somatic stuff. But she said to me in the podcast, so I had a, like an epiphany on the podcast. You can hear me <laughs> breathing then too. Where I went, she because she said to me, she said, at the time, yeah. your shutdown was your best friend. Yeah. And I kind of went, I've all, since I've known what it was yeah. and how it got there, it's always been a negative connotation. Like it, I wish it hadn't happened, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. But it's, you know, it doesn't matter if it's fight, flight or freeze at the time. It's, it's your best friend. And so, yeah, so that, but, but yeah, so Jane got me that epiphany on this podcast. But right then when you were talking about the, the pneumonia part of it, I'd never given any thought to that bit either. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. It's it's you know there's there's so many nuances, right, Warwick? It's like our survival responses are what kept us alive, whether it's fight, flight, freeze, fold, faint, feign death, fragment, fawn, <laughs> fine. Like there's so many F's that we use in English to describe the various trauma responses that we have. You know, survival responses, and and all of those, all of those were necessary under those original conditions. You know, and we're, we don't heal by further shaming and judging ourselves for mm. the very things that kept us going. Mm. You know, there, our physiology, our, our relational survival strategies, all of that recruited together and marshaled or fell apart, so to speak, you know, demarshaled <laughs> in order to keep us going. And, and that's, that's a beautiful thing. You know, it might not serve us as well now, but the, the solution isn't to judge ourselves for it. We only get past it by aligning with it. Some people in the psychotherapy field call that rolling with resistance, you know, and a form of rolling with resistance, and I forget the name of the person who coined that term, um, so apologies to that person. I'm usually really good at citing, and so I will acknowledge that this is not my idea, but certainly the, the concept is out there. 
Um, and rolling with resistance is this idea of not fighting the survival response and meeting it with more fight, but can we soften into that? Can we can we be gentle with the very thing that's causing challenge? You know, I think about children who were molested or children who had difficulty with you know inappropriate sexual advances and they coped by deactivating their, their arousal response and then they wind up in relationships later in life with a partner and they're unable to maintain erection or they're unable to, to reach orgasm and it's like oh i don't understand what this block's all about i'm gonna go get some viagra or whatever and it's like well no hang on a second here this might actually be now it's not true for everybody but you know in cases where there's a trauma history deactivating your arousal response and and finding yourself in your musculature to find strength would have been a really powerful survival mechanism and and so too is the the switching off of of sexual interest and it's like so so then i think to myself not only are we talking about a, a psychophysiological response but some people in the trauma world will talk about parts we have, we have parts of ourselves you know like inner child inner rebellious teenager you know the inner perfectionist you know we all got different parts the inner infant that's always crying for attachment you know there's these bits and pieces of ourselves that show up at different times and and i get really curious again about that bike chain kind of like with horse training it's like so before you lost sexual arousal with your partner can we back that up and go like where did you where did you disconnect where where did you go into your survival response to deactivate survival to deactivate sexual arousal and and what age are you right now how old are you in this moment you know i'm gonna guess it's not appropriate for a five-year-old to be having sex so of course you're not going to be able to have sex with your partner if you're connecting with that five-year-old Mm. right and so it's like so all this is all bike chain stuff this is just let's back it up back it up back it up and let's be really gentle with the fact that that was needed to survive it wasn't safe and it isn't appropriate for little kids to be having sex so of course that's going to be deactivated and the cool thing about trauma which is also the most frustrating thing about trauma is the is the conditioning around it right the slightest smallest thing that reminds us of the earlier thing sets off this unconscious response pattern that happens in the present moment, even if those original conditions are not happening now. And so the, the idea is, can we work with the physiology? Can we recognize the trauma response playing out? Can we have compassion for the resistance? Can we recognize that there's a reason why that's there? You know, that response served a function, super served a function. And in your case with the surgery in the hospital, you know, or not the surgery, but the, the, the pneumonia, I mean, this is, gosh, this is so, this is so compelling given COVID. I mean, there's so much suffocation trauma happening right now, and, and especially intubation trauma as a result of, of the, the ventilation machines. You know, it's terrifying. It is a terrifying experience. And so I have a lot of empathy for little Warwick and what he would have gone through, you know, with, with these early states. I mean, three, age three months to be having pneumonia in a hospital separated from caregivers, that's pretty overwhelming. That's a, that's a hard time. And I just, I hear, I keep hearing as I'm talking work, how you hold, you take these breaths in and you, you kind of hold, I feel almost like I feel my own diaphragm tightening as I hear you kind of do that and pull in. I knew this was going to happen. You're going to therapist me on my own podcast. <laughs> I'm not intending to. <laughs> <laughs> you did it when I was on your podcast. Too. I should have known. Um, <laughs> that wasn't you, my intention. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to go back to when you're talking about, say, uh, like why, why certain people are drawn to be doctors and stuff like that. Yeah, one of the podcasts I did was a 
podcast on books that have influenced me. Ah, and one of the books yes. was uh, The Masks of Masculinity by Lewis Howes. You've mentioned have this you before. You've told me about it before. Yeah. And, and it, you know, that book really made me think that all the people that are out there who you think are succeeding are only succeeding because of mm. trauma. You know, CEOs, it doesn't, you know, sports people, CEOs, mm. comedians, whatever. It's all, it's, they're all, it's all uh, related to trauma and you might be really successful, but I think if you are successful because of trauma, but don't heal the trauma, it's a pretty empty success and you, you just don't feel, uh, you know, your life's not really complete. And then you, you, I think you tend to want to get more and more of whatever that is, whether that's, you know, sports success or whatever. And I, and I often think about like the people that I've had on the podcast, quite a few of them in the same, you know, in the, the same sort of sphere as I am. Okay. Horse people who mm. ended up in the public eye. I kind of wonder, you know, it, it's funny. I get, you know, like at horse expos or in articles or whatever though, <laughs> you get this one of the world's leading horsemen. I'm like, that's bullshit. The world's leading, the world's best horsemen. You don't even know them. They're in the middle of Montana on a ranch. So, you know what I mean? That's not me. Yeah. Um, uh, but I, I often wonder what is it that led us to want to be, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot mm. of it's about wanting to help people, but sure. there's, there's also got to be a, a part of it. That's the, the, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure if I've spoken to you since I went, I went to a, a, a three day men's emotional resilience retreat, uh, last year. And I've talked about it earlier uh, before on the podcast cool. and the book that they were really, but this, a lot of it was based about, it's a book called, uh, King warrior, love a magician. It's the male archetypes. And it was talking about that each one of them has a, has a shadow side and the, the king mm. does things for the good of everyone, but the, the shadow side of that is the prince energy that does it for, uh, personal validation. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, and I kind of, you know, sometimes interviewing guests on here that are in the same sort of fear as I'm in, I wonder why you do this really? Cause yeah. I don't even know why I do this. It's in there sure. somewhere, but yeah. it's gotta be, um, and I actually had a, a bit of an, a, not an epiphany, but almost like a, um, an existential crisis at that at that uh, men's emotional retreat, uh, resilience retreat, because I'm, when they talked about that, I'm like, holy cow, why do I do what I do? Yeah. Do I do it? I think I do it because I'm trying to help people. I think I have that king energy. But what, what if it's just for the validation? And I'm sure there's, uh, there's parts of that, both of those there. But yeah, all of that stuff just makes you, makes you, makes you think. I love that that chain of that chain of thought work and where that's taking us. It's reminding me of um, when I did my master's degree many years ago. Dr. Tim Black out of the University of Victoria was my my thesis supervisor and my grad supervisor as well. And he used to say, "Whatever." That would be leads... Victoria, British Columbia. Columbia, yeah, not Victoria. I've got a lot of Australian people here. Then, yes. like, no, uh, Sarah did not go to school in Victoria, Australia. <laughs> Although that would have been really cool. I probably would have really enjoyed that. Um, Sorry yeah. to interrupt. I just wanted no, to get that's that okay. straightened out. That's okay. Yeah. Is there a University of Victoria in Australia? Known well, by Victoria that Victoria is a state. 
Yes, I'm and aware. So, yeah. And there are universities there, so maybe I there imagine is one. Hmm. Maybe. But so in, at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, um, my thesis supervisor, Dr. Tim Black, said, um, the reasons that lead you into becoming a psychotherapist cannot be the reasons that keep you a psychotherapist. And I've often thought that that is very potent and true because we often, again, it speaks to the self-selection. What led us into the career? If it's unresolved trauma, which for a lot of helper types, not just psychotherapists, but life coaches, wellness practitioners, healers of various types and so on, we're often known as a wounded, the walking wounded to a certain degree, yep. as the wounded healer archetype, so to yep. speak, right? Yep. And so, so there's things that led us into these careers. And if we're not actively working on those things, if we're not actively examining the unconscious motivations that led us to become helpers, healers, whatever, um, that can um, that can come and um, distort the work that we're doing. So in the therapy world, we talk about something called countertransference. So transference is the client's response to the therapist or helper, regardless of scope of practice. Countertransference is the therapist or helper's response to the human they are helping. And if we're not owning and paying attention to and working on our own stuff, it can easily bubble to the surface where we lose our objectivity and we're not actually being helpful, we're, we can actually be harmful. Sometimes it's, it's, it's not on purpose. I've certainly had moments where I was facing intense amounts of compassion fatigue as a result of experiencing criminal harassment from somebody who was tormenting for me for a number of years and it really affected my capacity to hold space for some clients that were similar to the person who was harassing me. And I, it was a lot harder for me to hold objective space for certain people. Uh, and that was, that was really hard. Um, but overall, if I take that sort of extenuating circumstance out of it, you know, what we're intending to do is we're trying to hold a clean space. And some people don't. I experienced sexual um, assault from a guru healer type guy many years ago. Um, who I turned to during a vulnerable period of my life and he had some spiritual gifts I will I will be honest, but he also had a lot of distortion and he had a lot of um, toxic um, behaviors and he did, engaged in a lot of power and control and grooming sexual grooming behaviors and so on because he and he called that part of the healing he, he called getting entangled in that kind of stuff his particular medicine that he was offering clients. I'm like, oh, that's a slippery slope. If you're not holding a clean space, you know, that's you enacting something onto somebody. I turned that person for a clean space and I got his projection. Um, and that was, that was not a healthy place to go. And so that particular individual does not appear to have done the work they need to continue to hold that space. You know, it sounds like that person's trauma is what led them into their profession, but it's not what, it's, it's, it's still what's maintaining them there. It isn't what's keeping it clean. And so if we think about horse training, it's like, well, so what led you to be a horse trainer? You know, what, what early experiences, positive or negative, strength-based, resilience-based, and or trauma-based, shaped you to be who you are, shaped you to select an either fully, you know, dichotomized perspective in either direction, you know, what, what led you into, into there, you know. And it, it becomes interesting because, like, I think of, you know the the person who wants to be a healer the person who what we might be call um we might call unintegrated so um i i have a colleague who's a life coach 
and starting out as a life coach and, and relatively new to life coaching and um, you know um, has a fair amount of empathy skills and 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 you know truly believes they're a healer in their in their heart of hearts and and I can see that that's true um, and has a tendency to fix and jump in and take over for clients or customers and 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 it doesn't feel like helping it feels a lot more like um, imposing something based on their response so client feels x y and z and then they have a reaction to what is happening for the client which is their countertransference and then they react out of the countertransference to offer a life coaching solution which isn't actually helping the client it's 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 handholding or or caretaking or enmeshed and it's like so if we're if we're truly being with and for our clients, what Dr. Sherry Geller calls therapeutic presence, regardless of your scope of practice, they're holding therapeutic presence is about holding space with and for the other person and their process. Or in the case of horsemanship, therapeutic horsemanship, you know, is is holding space for that animal. And and a good horse person, regardless of gender expression identity, regardless of background, will be holding a clean space with and for that animal and with and for its humans. And if we're not, our stuff will be coming forward. There was really interesting research that looked at, um, this is all still new-ish, but not enough research has been done yet, although there's some that's happening more and more around um, looking at people's attachment styles and how that influences which horse training methods they adopt and also the perspective they have of the horse and their interpretation of horse behavior uh, is in, in part influenced by their attachment style and what influences our attachment style but our early histories, right? And so you can't separate this out. This is the bike chain again. All these links are connected, right? So it's just interesting. Yeah, and you, you can't separate that out. But then when you completely understand that the energy, the internal energy you bring to any interaction with a horse yeah. influences the horse. And so then this is where you get to where, and, and I'm, you know, my, my son uh, has a degree in business and he handles all the... Mm -hmm the marketing and businessy side of what I do, you know, uh, when he first joined us, I, I, I basically, you know, he's going to take over all that stuff. And I said, the only thing you can't do is sell. We're here to help people. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. what got us this far. That's the only reason this thing's working. Cause I mean, I'm an, I don't even have a business plan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I've actually been on a podcast with a guy. He has a podcast called horse biz or something or other. And he kept trying to go, okay, what's the secret? What's your plan? Like, I don't have yeah. a plan. Just help people. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, so lately some of the advertising that Tyler's been doing has had this saying that I said a little while ago, mm -hmm. it's not a method, it's a mindset. Mm -hmm. And because the mindset you bring with any interaction with your horse mm -hmm. influences the horse. Mm -hmm. And so if you have, you know, if you bring all this, this stuff inside you, this trauma inside you, and then you project that onto the horse and then you get reflected back that, and then my horse is a bastard, you know what I mean? And it's, yeah. and uh, I'm on, I spent 45 eight years of my life not having my head wrapped around this. Not that I even had an education in it, but you know, yeah. uh, 
but once you once you see that and experience that you can't you can't unsee it and this morning on my facebook group it was interesting i i had posted a, a a youtube video about energy and intention with horses and a mm-hmm. girl replied and said yeah i was at a horsemanship clinic a few years ago and they were, were in the arena and there some horses outside the arena were getting trotted down a hill that was a pavement or something rather it was making a lot of noise and my horse reared up mm-hmm. and the clinician yelled at me stop pulling on him and she said i yelled back i'm not the lead rope's completely used loose and he said something to her like no internally not externally and she yeah. was he was standing there on his hind feet rearing up and she may as well have been pulling on the lead rope because all her internal energy was saying, don't do that, stop, instead of, well, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, look at you standing on your hind legs. But, it, you know, every, her whole internal being was screaming, don't, and like, and, and she said, and as soon as he said that, I kind of softened and, and gave away the judgment of what was happening. And her horse just came back down and just stood there. But the whole time that she was rejecting that and having a mm-hmm. visceral reaction to it, her horse was was tense. And that's that's the hard thing about this stuff, is and that's why I want to talk to you because yeah. I want really really want people to understand that I think everybody has trauma. Everybody. And if you are if you're around your horse and you haven't started to work on that stuff, there's going to be quite an element that of that. And it supersedes or it overrides any physical thing you may do with your body, you know, mm-hmm. like any aids or cues or whatever you might give mm-hmm. that stuff inside of you has, uh, those horses read that way more than the, you know, the, left leg, right leg, left hand, right hand, whatever it is you're doing. And yeah, it's, it's a deep subject and I don't mean deep as in profound. It is that too, but it's a, it's a, you know, there's a lot to it, but it's such a huge part of, of getting along with not just horses, with, with any other sentient being as well, but especially trying to get along with your horse, you know? Well, and it's interesting, you know, because as you were telling me about the story just now, I, and you, she was saying, well, the lead rope is, is loose, like I'm not holding it. And he was like, no, inside, not outside. I found my chest wall completely contracting. And I felt a whole bunch of tension happening in the upper part of my, my core. And, and I felt that internal tether that you were speaking about. And I'm like, I, exactly, like that's the resonance. Like I felt it as you shared the story. And I'm like, I can imagine what the horse was picking up on. And I don't even know this person. I'm hearing this secondhand and even I had a physiological response, right? So of course the horse is gonna have one as well. Uh, I'll give an example. So in uh, January, um, so I, um, I moved to a remote area not too long ago, a few months ago. And I've been adjusting ever since to my new surroundings and my new life. And um, and there was a day uh, in January where we had a very strong cold snap, 
And uh, at the exact same time, I had changed bales of hay and had started feeding, like the bale that I had cracked open was a little bit more coarse and dry. And when, it, when the cold snap happened, the horses weren't drinking as much water. So I woke up one morning to discover that I thought they had early signs of colic. Uh, impaction colic because cold weather and all these things and I immediately rallied and went into overdrive I'm out here by myself I'm you know miles away from any veterinarian like I'm literally in this area that's kind of kind of out there and I I was trying to figure out gosh like what do I what do I do so I had the vet on the phone and I was just praying for no power outage because at the time I didn't have a landline and I, you know, I was really just um, quite worried and distressed about my horses. So I started getting them on, like getting them moving and getting the mashes to get their fluids in their body, to get their bowels working, you know, and I was doing all this stuff and they still weren't drinking water. They didn't drink water for almost two, three days. And I was starting to panic and they were getting into their fluids through the mashes I was making with alfalfa cubes, but they weren't drinking. And I was like, what is going on? Like, come on, you dang horses, like just drink, <laughs> you know? And I was like, stop stressing out your mother. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I had a meeting with some colleagues of mine because with Equisoma, because of my move and, and all the transitions happening in my life these last eight months or so, um, a lot of things have had to go in the back burner until I sort of created more cultivated, more space in my life for this again. And um, I'm starting, I mean, this podcast, honestly, work, I'm glad we're doing it because this is um, a sign to me that I'm there's more space and capacity in me to re-engage with my aspects of my old life again. So it's, it's really nice to be here today on, for multiple reasons. You're an, you're an enjoyable person to talk to, but also for myself, it, it, it marks the beginning of a re-entry back into um, what I was doing prior to my move. So I had a meeting with a number of my Equisoma um, faculty and training assistants, and I was having a hard time. I cried. I was like, I'm overwhelmed, everybody. Like, I'm having a really hard time with this. Like, I moved to this area. My job, my new job is really rewarding, but really hard. And, you know, and, and there's all this stuff. And being out here by myself on this farm, like, it's hard. Like, I'm doing all these things alone. And uh, and I said, you know, and my horses won't drink. And they're call they're having impaction colic. And I'm stressed out. And I said, I don't even want to unpack my boxes because I'm not even committed that I'm going to be staying here. Like I'm so overwhelmed and scared of being here that I'm not even unpacking my own boxes. And they said, did you just hear what you said? <laughs> they, they're like, you're, you're not unpacking your boxes. You're impacted too. And, and I felt like something released a little bit and I cried and my gut started to unwind a little bit, like the musculature and the, the, the fascia and the tissues started to soften a little bit. And I had some tears because as the dictum says, you know, when we feel held, then we can let go, right? So I felt held by my group, even though it was by Zoom, you know, I, I sort of, my body let down into their holding. And then I talked again and I said something else. I said, um, oh, and I said, I'm so backed up with all this, this shit that I have to deal with, you know, and there's all this, I'm, I'm so backed up with work and Equisoma and my book contract because I'm trying to finish my, my manuscript for my publisher and, you know, and all this stuff. And, and they're like, you did it again. You hear how backed up you are. That's what colic is. You also said shit. You said an old backed up with shit. <laughs> well, because I was so overwhelmed, right? It's not truly shit. Like, I've, these are all things right. I love, but like, you know, I'm just, I'm so overwhelmed, but the words came out. I'm backed up with shit. And I cried again because it was witnessed and held and my body released a little bit more. And we finished our meeting and they said, I said, I'll, I'll go outside and see the horses. I'm going to go count poops and see where the water levels are at. And they went out 
and they finally drank. And I was like, yes, because it wasn't about, it wasn't just the cold snap and me opening up a, a dry coarse bale of hay. It was they were experiencing my own backed upness, you know, and, and responding in kind. My animals have always done that. My dogs have always done that with me. They've always ended up with the same physical ailments that I've ended up having within a very short period of time. And, and that was one of those examples of that. So that story that you shared about like, you know, the internal state, like how we contract, how we hold, I mean, that's palpable. We, we were teaching Equisoma once last year in an online format. We had students from around the world in the training. It was really cool. And we were talking about um, biophysiology and we were talking about how the nervous system moves through survival responses and how animals under optimal conditions work through those responses. They activate or they marshal a response and then they deactivate and it come, you know, they kind of come out the other side. Their body releases what was built up, you know, and, and, and then they go back to homeostasis or balance and everything's great. Um, but that this doesn't happen in captivity conditions for the most part. Not that animals in the wild can't experience trauma because they do. Um, but captivity conditions form a very particular set of circumstances that humans and other animals experience that contribute to trauma responses. Um, because we don't have that ability to reset, to discharge, to let down, let go. We're not held. You know, we don't have the space in which we can de-armor ourselves, so to speak. And we're in this training and we were looking at a bunch of photographs and some video showing gazelles and impala and, and zebra, you know, moving through these trauma responses. And we were just talking a little bit about um, one of the, I think it was one of the videos showing uh, a leopard chasing uh, or going after an impala of some kind and the one of the students was in some other country on some other side of the world um, and she was like you know what's really cool right now we're talking about the impala being chased by a leopard um, and my cat has just started running at top speed around my apartment and I have not seen this cat be aggressive like ever. And this cat is now engaging in stalking and prowling behaviors while we're in this Zoom meeting <laughs> talking about predatory behavior in the animal world. And I'm like, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, this is this is this is resonance. Right. Like when when you're when you hear me talk about suffocation, you hold your breath. Right? We, don't, we don't have to unpack that, but it's just another version of that. Right. And it's like, oh, our, this is why we're mammals, right? We're meant to have resonance with each other. It's part of our survival, you know? So it's the same with horses. Like, and if we have unresolved stuff within ourselves as horse trainers, because we were, say, raised with heavy handedness or, you know, you know, I'll give you something to cry about and, you know, or whatever, or we were gaslit. Like the example that you gave a while ago of the horse reacting to the human trainer's handling and then the human trainer calls that horse an asshole or a, ba a bastard or whatever. And it's like, oh, you're being a bitch. You're deliberately doing X, Y, and Z. It's like, well, hang on a second. How much of it we just gaslit the horse into? The horse is responding to something about what you're saying or doing or experiencing and, and you're blaming it for its normal response to the circumstances or to what you're putting out there. That would be a form of gaslighting. You know, and we, we do that. That's, that's a form of trauma response. And if it's there, it's, I'm naming this not to, um, to create judgment. Gosh, I'm not a perfect person either. I mean, I'm, I'm right up there with all of y'all in terms of, you know, working through my stuff. I mean, I'm a human too. Um, but it's more to incite curiosity. It's like, oh, if that's playing out, that to me is usually an indication that there's something for us to look at.
like you said, you know, trauma, trauma is everywhere. Or as I like to say, trauma is in every room and round pen, you know, and, and it is, you know, whether that's the human or the horse or both, you know, and, and I take a pretty wide definition of what trauma is. Like, like your example, right, of early suffocation experiences coupled with separation from your attachment figures. That's early developmental trauma, right? People often associate trauma with like, you know, car accidents and rapes and being beaten. And it's like, well, no, it's more than that. Yeah, I I always had, and and it wasn't until I read Peter Levine's Waking the Tiger, and then I think maybe The Body Keeps the Score by uh, Bessel yeah. van der Kolk, yeah. which I mentioned both of those books in my book podcast. And cool. I think it was reading those things that made me like, oh, mm -hmm. really? Mm -hmm. You know, and that, and that, you know, it's here we are completely yeah. down the rabbit hole. But yeah, and, and this is not... Uh, you know, uh, you know, none of this is to point the finger at that any anybody. But I think once you like, the further, the deeper you try to go with the horses, the more you try to, yeah. you know, the, the, I've talked about this before in the podcast. But I, I think the great thing about horses is you get out of them what you put into them, and when you get to a point where you're trying to get further with them, you've got to look deeper. A lot of times within yourself to get there, and I think that's you know they, they just become our discipline, and we could be doing martial arts or something. Like you still have to do the same thing. Totally. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's just a, I don't know. The subject fascinates me these days, and and uh, I guess because I've got so much out of you know taking a bit of a dive into into my stuff, but it's it's come out in the in the the horse training stuff you know i think i was i forget i was i was talking to someone recently on the podcast but i was talking about how these days at not that i'm doing many clinics these days with covid but in the last couple of years you know at a clinic or a horse expo or whatever someone's got a horse that's pretty uptight and they'll hand the horse to me mm. and i'm going to take the lead rope and and do something to help the horse through the problem but a lot of times they'll hand me the lead rope and the horse is just going to they just let down and I have to turn to everybody and say, I didn't do anything right then. I didn't just project, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I didn't, and, and that's, I, I try to tell them that there is not being good with horses. That there is all the stuff I've been working on away from the horses. And it's, it's just made me realize how much getting good with horses is that, that, that you know, that, that stuff has an effect on you know well, you know and that speaks to two things um and one is and may i'll bring them up both here so that way you can help me come back around if i forget one because there's two points i wanted to name one is about um uh something you had said earlier around uh what what we get reinforced into you know and we select careers that that are reinforcing to us and like you said the king and the shadow the shadow prince you know um, there's something i wanted to name about that around coping privilege and i'll come back to that in just a moment um, if i forget anything please remind me about coping privilege it's another term i've coined um, and it's not even the right term but i just don't know how else to call it um, and then the other piece is around um, the positive reinforcement. We've talked a little bit about sort of the negative reinforcement folks and what leads us into, say, more extreme sort of only focus on negative reinforcement and not the softer bits and pieces around positive reinforcement. And were you 
treated a certain way by your parents growing up where you weren't affirmed, you weren't given, you weren't shown love or kindness or, you know, affirmation. And therefore you think that that stuff is, you know, hooey and very fluffy and therefore it's not valid and it has to be a particular way. And of course, with negative reinforcement, some of the more extreme versions of that include a lot of misunderstanding of what dominance theory is about. Um, and that that's a whole other topic of conversation. Um, but the the positive reinforcement people, like you were saying, a lot of this is our internal work. You know, it's it, it, horsemanship is not just like you said a set of techniques. It's a mindset, and it's like well, it's also your state. It's also your healing work. You know, you're only going to be as far as you've come yourself, right? We say that about therapists all the time. A therapist can only bring their client as far as they've gone themselves, and I think that's true with humans and horses and horsemanship, or equine behavior consulting or whatever your horse profession happens to be, you know, and and so I think of um, sort of the more positive reinforcement strictly only folks. And I get curious about um, if anybody in that camp has experienced, doesn't have the ability to differentiate between intensity and rage. You know, and I think that was in my blog post originally, yep. if we come back around to it, right, is like one of the hallmarks of trauma is a lack of differentiation things get overcoupled and things start to all look the same and so we start to lump everything into the same category and we can't recognize difference and so so how many folks who have tried to go into learning negative reinforcement say they started there and were come into contact with a lack of ability to recognize the nuance in the horse a lack of ability to recognize the thresholds because the natural horsemanship trainer wasn't paying attention to the horse's thresholds or their own and they brought the horse well beyond threshold into flooding and that can happen inadvertently with negative reinforcement quite easily if we're not paying attention and negative reinforcement can be done without attention to relationship and connection and then that can also create a reenactment of trauma response about coercion and shutdown as opposed to it being about choice and and consent um, but also for the person who might have experienced um, a very enraged parent or parent who was violent who had anger issues they might not be able to differentiate between an increase in intensity within safety of relationship while I still feel connected and an increase of rage and intensity that's punitive and they might not be able to distinguish the two and so if a person who has that kind of trauma response for whom there's an overcoupling, as Peter Levine likes to say, you know, as I start to increase my intensity of arousal, I immediately come into contact with incomplete fight response energy or shame around violence because I have my own unresolved angers that I haven't dealt with because I don't want to be like my great uncle Ted or my grandfather or my grandmother, you know, and so I've learned to shut down my anger response because I don't even want to go there because that's terrifying to come into contact with a little bit of increase of intensity can open up a complete Pandora's box around all the stuff that's been avoided. And so it's like, well, I'm not even going to go there because that stuff's one big ball of wax and it's all harmful. Therefore, I'm going to just be safe and I'm going to go all the way over in this opposite direction and avoid that stuff like the plague versus, hey, let's let's start to tease apart and differentiate between unresolved anger and rage and trauma response, fight response stuff that's locked in the nervous system that's terrifying, that needs to be worked through really carefully and what Peter Levine calls healthy aggression and finding assertion within that and being able to raise intensity without it being an emotional punitive thing and in having an intensity within the safety of connected relationship is very different 
because we can increase our intensity within thresholds while respecting thresholds and remaining connected and have that not be about flooding and coercion and shutdown. Right. And so there's a, a lack of differentiation there. And that also speaks to me of possible trauma response. I say mm. possible because I can't diagnose or I don't want to lump everybody into one category. Right. This is this will fit for some people and not for others. So I'm not trying to create broad sweeping stereotypes or generalizations here. If this fits for somebody, it will fit. And if it doesn't fit, then toss it, of course, as usual. Um, but if I come back around to. Uh, coping privilege. So earlier you were talking about people who self-select into their own careers um, and they, they, they excel in that career, um, like you said, CEOs and all sorts of these, these things um, because of trauma response. And, it, and yes, you can be a CEO or X, Y, and Z profession and, and have you know, worked on your trauma and have that not be the driving factor. Um, but like I said earlier, like Tim Black would always tell me was, you know, the reason what led you into your career cannot be the reason that keeps you there, you know, because you'll burn out. And that we in somatic experiencing, we call that a management strategy. So um, and in parts work theory or shadow work or, you know, the, all these kinds of there's different ways to discuss ego state approaches that work with the parts of the self. Um, internal family systems therapy, we'll talk a little bit about managers. There's, there's categories of parts of self. I, I lump it down into two to make it really simple. There's the protectors and the protected, right? So we've got these parts of ourselves that are protecting us and we've got the aspects of ourselves that need protection. And we've, you can easily break it down into two. And the protector parts have two sort of functions uh, depending on where they show up. And so in internal family systems therapy, they talk about uh, managers and firefighters. Managers are really proactive parts of ourselves that often get highly reinforced and prized by society, right? Like the perfectionist, right? How many of us have an inner perfectionist? That's often highly prized by schools and educators and employers and so on. And, and so that can be a trauma response if left unchecked, right? Because it, it also helped us to survive. If I just am so attention to detail that I cross all my T's and dot all my I's and I do everything right, then no one can judge me and I won't be shamed or I won't be rejected. Right. And so so the function of the perfectionism is to protect the part of me that wants to belong. Right. So and to avoid the pain of, of separation or the pain of ridicule. Right. And so so the part of me that makes me into a perfectionist is what we would call a manager. It's often, again, a very highly proactive uh, behavior set that we have. Um, firefighters are often less prized by society. They often show up after the manager failed. So, you know, in, in, in spite of my best efforts to prevent harm, something comes to the surface, uh, an emotion comes forward, I'm vulnerable, I do get harmed or there's a risk of harm, and then we're gonna pull out all the stops to like stop that from happening. And so firefighter parts of ourselves are protectors that um, come up when we're feeling like, uh-oh, uh, my best attempts are not working here. And so that's usually things like addictions and dissociation and self-harm and, you know, mm, okay. right. And they're kind of like the more emergency, like they put out fires, right? That's the job of the firefighter. They make a mess, right? It's like, we're just going to get quick and dirty and put this fire out by any means necessary. It's not as polished, right? And so, um, so when I think about coping privilege, you know, I think about the CEO, right? The CEO might have just as much trauma as the person who's on unemployment insurance, who's unable to sustain a job or who's on disability, 
right? And unfortunately, because of society and what, how society falls, if you're, I hate calling it coping privilege, I just don't have a better word for it. But within, when we talk about privilege and we talk about sort of white privilege, male privilege, soci, uh, privilege based on religion, based on language spoken, based on, um, based on ethnicity, skin color, like, you know, ableism, able-bodied people versus non-able-bodied people, thin privilege, etc. right? So there's all these privileges. But no one really talks about what I'm calling coping privilege. It's like if your set of circumstances happened to reinforce a manager part of you into being highly perfectionistic, overworking, overriding, you know, being a workaholic, being the high achiever type, because I'm one of them, right? And that was how your trauma manifested as a protective mechanism. That gives you a certain amount of privilege in the world over the person whose management strategies were the firefighters, right? To dissociate, to be disconnected, to shut down, to not be able to function, to, you know, to, to go into the addictions and the coping and stuff. I mean, workaholism is its own addiction, right? But mm -hmm. it's like that person has just as much harm. I, I'll, I'll, I remember a colleague told me once a story of a, a friend they had and there was like the, the the siblings were all super educated they all had master's degrees in like engineering and one had a phd in some sort of like biophysics or something and then they had one sibling who was on disability and couldn't work and everybody in the family would point the finger at the one person in the family who was the black sheep because they were the one who was not coping and they were the one who was struggling with drugs and various things right and and i looked at that situation i'm like but they're all equally traumatized, mm, potentially, yes. right? Because yes. cope, coping privilege, just because all y'all were able to go off and, and, and become um, overachievers doesn't mean that you're not struggling. doesn't mean that you're not coping with addictions, that your relationships are not falling apart, that you have difficulty sustaining attachment, right? That you're not deep down crippled by self-doubt and, and shame, right? It's just you happen to lock into a form of coping that got really prized by society. Your manager got in charge your sibling carries the brunt of all the shame and ha has been surviving by the firefighters right and so does that mean that they're more traumatized or less no it's just it just means you know how we got there we got to again go back in the bike chain mm -hmm. and look at this really objectively with a lot of compassion right we're you no know, different that's the, that's the thing for me delving into you know my stuff and and things like that when you i said mm. before like everybody's got trauma and then you mm. when you start to realize that the ceos and the heroin addicts probably have the same problems they just you know they come out of it different ways you really for me personally it's really made me a lot less judgmental mm -hmm. and a lot more compassionate because yeah. you, and I, well i think you've got to get rid of the judgment to get to the compassion but when you understand that it wasn't a choice, like I, I've, uh, what book of Gabor Mate's was it? I think it's in the realm of hungry ghosts yeah. I listened to, and he talks about, you know, so many, if not all people who are addicted, um, a, a lot of it comes from lack of attunement mm -hmm. and, and that in itself is not like you wouldn't look at that and go, Oh, they're being abused or whatever, but that's a big deal, especially back in like, yeah. like the era when I grew up. Yeah. Um, and it's something as simple as that can, can, uh, 
yeah, cause you to be some sort of a, an addict. And I, I really am a big fan of Russell Brand. I think the guy's amazing. But mm. his book, Recovery, mm. you know, he says, we're all on the addiction scale somewhere. He says, I was lucky because I was a down and out smackhead. And the good thing about being a smackhead, you have a figure out you've got a problem with your dead mate. Yeah. You know what I mean? He yeah. says, but if you have some of the lower addictions like, you know, eating, workaholic, porn, whatever, mm -hmm. socially accepted addictions, he says, you can spend all your life with this yeah. level of unrest that inside you that's not bad enough to make you fix it, but you just don't feel yeah. right. Yeah. It's, 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 it's humbling. I remember, what was the quote, Terence, and that wasn't his original name, but that was the name that was given to him. He was an early, I believe an early slave back around like the start, like back in Roman times. Um, and he had a quote that I really like, and I, I'm not saying his name properly. So apologies, um, to, to him for, um, using his slave name. Um, but he says, uh, nothing that's human is foreign to me. And I, and I love that quote because it implies that, again, the CEO who might be on top of the world in terms of wealth and whatever, but is falling apart inside and lacks empathy and is, is, has, you know, is, is, is cheating and has multiple side relationships and has a drug addiction and you know his relationships falling apart and is estranged from his children or her children or what have you and the person who's on the street who's you know hitting up the next the next injection you know for the next high they're both lacking attunement they just they just coped in different ways they're both seeking something on the outside to give them that hit right and so the overworking, the workaholism provides a similar hit in terms of those responses in the brain, in terms of the, neurotra the neurotransmitters, as, as will, you know, uh, an, an intravenous drug in in injection, right? There could be some differences, of course, but the, the seeking of something on the outside to replace something that was missing through attunement that's now a gaping hole on the inside, those are the same. Right, that it, what we call an external locus control, that is the same, right? The mechanism that developed as a result of that looks different. But again, if you look at the bike chain and not the specifics of the bicycle, the bike chain is going to have a similar process, you know? And we look at those links in the bike chain again, and it's like, okay, yeah, the bike might be different, but, you know, the chain that's driving the bike is not that different. And what's human shouldn't be foreign to any of us and and right now there's a meme going around social media and it's kind of it's kind of got me curious because people are talking about you know the traditional response which is you know to be judgmental and so on and blah blah, blah. and then they're talking about the trauma-informed response which is oh like let's understand the trauma behind behavior and but and then they said and now we're evolving beyond that and we're looking at like the compassion response i'm like but those two are not distinct for me like i come to compassion as a result of understanding what caused what's going on. You know, like I, it's the understanding of the trauma that helps me have compassion and vice versa. Having compassion opens me up to understanding the history. And so to me, those are not separate, but there's, it feels like there's this false distinction happening right now where it's like, oh, well, if you're trauma informed, it means that you just see the trauma in the human. I'm like, but that's not, 
true. Maybe that's true for some people, but that that's that's not true for me. When I teach trauma-informed awareness, it, it is coming from a place of compassion and loving the person or the animal in front of me. It doesn't mean I see them as nothing but their trauma. A trauma-informed response does not limit the being to being a product of their trauma. That would not be consistent with a trauma-informed response. So, so you had said compassion. I wanted to just name that because I've been seeing that floating around the internet lately, and I'm like, oh, but I feel like there's a false distinction happening there. I, yeah. I don't. Those to me are not separate. Yeah, they're the same you know? thing. Yeah. You know, I I said before that looking into my stuff, and then that kind of gives me a lot more compassion empathy for others but it's really made me a difference with the horses yeah to where you understand that any of those behaviors behaviors that a horse is exhibiting that we would find undesirable instead Mm. of wanting to make the behavior go away I really understand that the behavior serves a function and it's come from an unmet need somewhere. And if you can figure out what the unmet need is, you don't have to train the problem away. And that, and that, you know, and that's a, you know, that may be a quantum leap for some people and no judgment if they're not, if they're not there yet, but it, 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 yeah, it, it just really, you know, I've, I've I've been kind of lucky, or and unlucky, but it is what it is. Spending like forty eight years of my life seeing the world one way, yeah. and in the last five years, seeing it completely differently. And I think I'm lucky because I still remember when I saw it the other way. A lot of people, their journey started so much earlier, and they've made this gradual morph. They don't they don't even know that they done it whereas for me it was pretty steep learning curve so i can still i don't forget that bit back there i remember what it was like back there so yeah yeah, but it's really understanding a lot of this trauma stuff has really made me uh you know view the horses differently but really understanding polyvagal theory and attunement and stuff has as we've talked about before i come i usually come to the science from the back end i i learn it Mm. empirically and then i figure out oh there's a science that backs this up and for me polyvagal theory answered it it kind of explained why everything i had been doing recently started Mm. was working like it was working like oh that Mm. makes sense yeah Mm -hmm. so yeah i'm a big fan of that well, so here's a question, Warwick. I'm, I'm wanting to be mindful of the time. We've been talking for 75 minutes, and I feel like there's like, gosh, we could open up polyvagal theory here. And then I, I was feeling really inspired by what you were saying and wanting to bring in like indigenous ways of knowing and mm. de- decolonizing as white people. Like how do we recognize how we have influenced, you know, indigenous, um, you know, patterns and, and how do we sort of help with, you know, being good allies and recognizing, you know, how science has kind of overridden indigenous ways of knowing and the, the the spiritual sort of aspect of this and these more bottom-up ways of processing that some of it can be explained by science and some of it is like so much more beyond you know kind of like the, the example i gave you of my horses you know and it's like well I, there was nothing i could do to make them drink until i processed and moved through my own impactions and then they started drinking water you know that that's that's truly some of this non um 
like that that's sort of beyond like I suppose you could quantify that perhaps but like there's this whole other piece where the science and the spiritual meet and I I don't know if you want to continue I know my my dog is asking to go to the bathroom and I'm kind of like I'm mindful of his needs as well and I don't know if we can press pause and continue or if you want to do a round two um, oh, but no, I realize there's a lot here let's <laughs> press pause and you take the dog potty because okay I just did a podcast recently with with Rupert Isaacson who's yes. who was the the author of The Long Ride Home and The Horse Boy yeah. and <laughs> we we went there and I, to tell you the truth, I am still, I'm still processing it. it mm. Something happened to me, listening to that guy on the podcast and you're probably going to trigger a bit more of it here when you get back from, yeah, let's, sure. let's take a let's break and that. let's come back and talk all things weird. <laughs> let's go woo woo. <laughs> okay. So Sarah, you're back from uh, taking your dog potty. You know, while you were out there. In the backyard, I was just thinking a minute ago that, you know, there's quite possibly some people listening to this who, you know, some of the things we've talked about here might have them thinking about things they may not have thought about before, and they may be sitting with some feelings they're not used to feeling. So, because I know what that's like when you start down this stuff, um, I thought maybe you might want to walk everybody through that in case that's what's happening before we go any further. Cause I sure. shouldn't want to leave anybody hanging with, with some of those feelings that if they're not sure what to do with them. Yeah, sure. You know, and this is what's always so tough. You know, some people call these courageous conversations or brave conversations, you know, and, and, and sometimes they put us up against the edges of our own awareness or they put us up against the edges of our own window of tolerance to use Dan Siegel's language. Um, sometimes they, they, connect us with a lot of aha moments. Some of you may be having some really strong moments of insight of going, oh, that fits or, oh, that connects for me or, oh, I have questions now and, you know, I'm, I'm curious about this and I wonder about that. And for some people, you might be feeling really inspired. Some of you might be feeling really uncomfortable. Um, and so I'm imagining that there are a number of different responses taking place today that um, may reflect just where you're at right now. Um, and that can be as if it's discomfort, it can be because of, you know, stirrings of, of unresolved things or unexamined pieces that, you know, haven't come to the surface yet or that you've been keeping at bay through your own management sort of strategies. Or it could also represent, um, you know, that could represent shame. It could represent something that we call cognitive dissonance. So cognitive dissonance is when you have a particular belief or mindset uh, about yourself, the world, etc., and others, and you're presented with information that um, challenges your belief system or your mindset, and and the discrepancy between the new information and what you currently believe can be really uncomfortable. And some people, as a knee-jerk reaction to that cognitive dissonance, that dissonance between belief and new information, it is so is so great that discomfort is so great that they immediately discredit the new information and double down on their position because it's more comfortable to do so. Um, in somatic experiencing, we call that an expansion contraction pattern. Like there's an expansion into new information here, and that can be accompanied by expansion of feelings, expansion in your body. Expansion doesn't always feel comfortable. Sometimes as we open up into something new, we come into contact with other things that we haven't wanted to look at yet or didn't 
didn't even know were there. And then we can have a contraction around the expansion or as a result of the expansion because it's like, oh, that's too much. You know, and that's a threshold question. We do this with horses all the time. You know, we ask a horse to do something and we get it to do something bigger than what it's used to and it's beyond its threshold and then it will contract in response, right? And so we do that too. So if you're noticing some of that happening in this podcast as you're listening and really any any podcast or any information that you take in that's sort of got some edges to it that you're not comfortable with or not familiar with see if you can sort of find your find your sit bones find your find yourself on whatever surface you're 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 on at this time or if you're walking you know feel your feet on the ground find the interface and see if you can just settle into that for a little bit and hold some curiosity around what might be coming up for you right now because we're all people what's human is not foreign to us what's mammalian to adapt from terence you know what's mammalian is not foreign to us and and we've had to shut down some of this stuff to survive that's valid you know so if any part of this podcast has been bringing up things for you that are uncomfortable just you know you might take a break you might press pause you might focus on something that's comforting for you you know, sometimes having a hand on your belly or a hand on your chest just to feel some containment and to feel some warmth can be really helpful and just sort of allowing your attention to go there instead. You know, or it might be that you, you bring your attention to something that feels solid right now, something that's the opposite. Titration is a concept that was derived from the chemistry field and Dr. Peter Levine talks about titration as this idea of only doing little bits that you can tolerate. So many of us have learned to override and go well beyond our capacity into what two teachers of mine, Kathy Kane and Steve Terrell, call the faux window of tolerance, which is where we're overriding outside the window and we think we're calm. <laughs> and, you know, we think we're doing well, but in reality we're just overriding. You know, to be in the real window of tolerance can be quite uncomfortable. So it's like, what can support you right now? to slow down, to not have to take this all on at once. Just to be with whatever small dose of this information feels tolerable and let the rest go for now. You know, And if you need some support with that, there are certainly people who are trained in this area of work, this sort of bottom-up processing, working with what's coming up in the body response. Um, certainly, um, there's the Somatic Experiencing Trauma Institute. Feel free to check them out. They've got a directory of, of people who work with this sort of dilemma in our bodies where we're feeling something uncomfortable that we want to shut down. You know, that expansion, contraction kind of thing. If that's part of your bike chain, um, they would be some really good people to look into. Um, there's internal family systems as a different way of working with what might be coming up for you. Uh, sensory motor psychotherapy. You know, there's, there's lots of different... Lots of different ways, brain spotting, EMDR, um, uh, deep brain reorienting. There's a lot, a lot of them. Um, but Warwick, I know that you were talking a little bit about, um, we were starting to talk about indigenous uh, themes and you were talking about Rupert Isaacson, I believe, before we did a brief pause there for a moment. And if I come back around yeah. to moving away from Western ways of knowing 
and Western ways of, of healing and working with trauma. And now some of those Western ways that I've just talked about, interestingly enough, and perhaps not surprisingly, have been appropriated from indigenous methods. Somatic experiencing derives in part, not just from neuroscience and biophysiology, but also derives from indigenous healing methods that Peter Levine studied with a number of different indigenous cultures around the world. He talks about those in Waking the Tiger. He talks about them in An Unspoken Voice. He's currently writing his autobiography where he's going into greater depth about the different communities he's worked with at this uh, you know in his history um, you know even internal family systems which is known as an ego state therapy or an ego state approach ego state approaches come from shadow work and shadow work you know in, in terms of white culture we can think of Carl Jung who talked about archetypes in the collective unconscious and that's largely derived from a lot of indigenous traditions and collectivistic cultures and and shamanic themes so I, I want to also be careful of the word shamanism because um, there's some issues around colonization with even the concept of generic shamanism um, you know white people came along and studied different indigenous cultures and traditions and lumped them all together and called it shamanism and in reality there's there while there's similarities there's a lot of differences too and we've kind of whitewashed shamanism into this thing that white people can appropriate and I, I think it's really important you know people like Rupert Isaacson who have gone and studied with particular communities you know and, and name those communities I think that's a really important piece you know if we're going to start talking about some of what's coming up for folks yeah, talking to Rupert the other day, like I said before, we went before your dog went potty right there. It just, <laughs> yeah, he had something shifted in me, and it's still, it's still floating around in there. But yeah, I, I, I really starting to think that I have a, mm, there's something in me that really attracts me to that stuff. Mm -hmm. Really flips my switch, like really interests me. So, um, I'm not exactly sure why, but, uh, yeah, I had uh, some of the stuff he said, I've, I've listened to his podcast back a number of times and, and I'm the only one I've had a lot of, uh, feedback from people and everybody's just flabbergasted, but, but, uh, yeah. So have you had much, um, real-life experience with, say, like Indigenous healing, or has it more been stuff you've studied? So my, I'm going to contextualize my experiences in this area as a white person coming in as an ally who tries to practice anti-racist and anti-oppressive practice. Um, so I'm not an indigenous, an indigenous person. We have done our genealogy down both sides of my family all the way back to when we first came to Canada from Europe. Um, down my mom's side, there are indigenous women who are in my family tree. Um, it's uh, documented both in my genealogy and in my DNA. We've done our DNA analysis, so we've got um, documentation, but I do not claim it indigenous um, status. So I want to make sure that it's clear that I'm coming in as a white person today uh, and talking about this because appropriation is really important for me and, and acknowledging how we as white people have come in and taken culture, culture and tradition from marginalized or indigenous populations and then, you know, at the same time, um, engage in a lot of oppression and genocide. And it's, 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 a, it's something that we want to be really careful about, you know. And I remember I worked with, um, when I did my master's degree, I had a, a Métis professor, Honoré uh, France, who also at the University of Victoria in British Columbia, and he said, you know, there's this real trend around white people being attracted to indigenous traditions. 
And we want to be really careful about white privilege there around this attraction to indigenous traditions while at the same time simultaneously engaging in racism, systemic racism against them. You know, it's really, it speaks to our white privilege that we can go in and cherry pick the things from these traditions that we think are really cool or whatever, while at the same time simultaneously oppressing them and, and having these sort of, the, 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 the intergenerational effects of colonial trauma sort of playing out. And so he said, you know, he said he suspects that, and I'm going to paraphrase Dr. Dr. France here for a moment, but um, he had talked about um, that ultimately, if we all go far enough back in our own lineages, you know, it's like I said earlier when Terence said, you know, nothing that's human is foreign to me. If we all go far enough back in our lineages, there will be times where we, as a, our ancestors, our ancestors way back had their own traditions and songs, you know, and what were they, you know? And so sometimes I think that the, the drive and the curiosity around traditional peoples may reflect our own disembodiment from our own cultures and our own traditions, you know, especially if our people came and, and, and immigrated from where we originally were from and moved to this new place, and then we appropriated this new place, and then we've lost touch with our own cultures and traditions, and then as a way of trying to make up for that, we try to appropriate those of others. And it's like, well, what were our own? You know, not that it's not, not that it's wrong to show interest in indigenous community and indigenous culture and tradition. I mean, me myself working now in an indigenous community and um, and taking part or being invited to take part in different traditions and drumming and ceremony and so on, um, and also working with the community to develop programs and services that are indigenous led, where the curriculum has been indigenized and where I've where I'm encouraging what I'm calling decolonizing horsemanship, you know, which if you do a Google search, you'll, you'll find there's absolutely no results for decolonizing horsemanship for some odd reason. <laughs> it, it's not a concept. And, and yet we talk about decolonizing trauma recovery, you know, and decolonizing, um, you know, um, the history of indigenous peoples who've been colonized for centuries and the trauma that's occurred since contact. And how do we how do we decolonize and support the reclaiming of what was always theirs, you know, and how do we do that with horsemanship? And that's sort of this, this area that I'm wanting to really tread carefully about that I'm really passionate about. So I wanted to just couch our conversation in, in that lens, because I think it's really easy for us as white people to show a lot of interest and curiosity in what we might call shamanic traditions. I use that word with quotation marks because I'm not a fan of the term, but I understand what it refers to. Um, but if we, if we, we can have an interest there and we want to be really respectful about about yeah for me the interest in that stuff i think is because uh, you know like when i was you know when i was a young mm. trainer and i was wanting to learn to do the raining stuff you know mm. i was doing the raining yeah i'm looking at what the best guys are doing totally well i'm starting to really get in this whole connection to yeah. nature and to energy and the divine itself and yeah these guys have been doing it for longer than anybody else and doing it, I think, better. So that, I think that's, totally. that's my interest in it. It's, it's, like, it's like going to the original. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like yes. they were the ones that did it first yes. and then everything else has been kind of, you know, a chopped up version of that. But it's almost like going to the... Yeah. Let's go to the source. Of the, of the matter is, is, yeah, the source really like mm. the, yeah. That's, that's probably what my... The, probably what my interest in it is because, you know, like doing various meditation practices and, and different things like that, there'll be times when I'll be 
I don't know. I, I, I feel I can, I can, I can f feel the universe. Like you can, yeah. like every, like you become like an antenna yes. for yes. energy. And that's, that feeling is just uh, uh, amazing. You just feel like you're a, not separate from anything, but part of it. And it's just, you know, I get fleeting glimpses of it every once in a while, but uh, just, you know, anything that can uh, just enhance that and, and and I really start to think you know that when you that's when you really tune in to say horses too like you yeah. really start to get that feedback because you know as yeah. you know I've always been in my head and you get that mm. somatic thing going to where your body becomes a you know you 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 feel things rather than yeah. think things you know you instead of viewing it with your I've got a there's a book I've read about shamanism called um calling us home mm -hmm. by a fellow named Chris uh, Luchow, I think his name is, but he's got the ooh things over his of Nordic descent. But he spent a lot of time in uh, here in North America and I think also in Africa. But he basically outlined some practices and, and you know, one of them is to go out and sit in nature and just mm -hmm. observe mm -hmm. what you can see. And then another part of the practice is sit in nature and, and just sit there and what can you hear? Mm -hmm. And then he starts to combine it. You go out there and you sit there and what do you feel like turn your body into a bit of an antenna and after a while you go out and you sit there and you you know like you use 30 percent of what's coming into you is what you see and 30 percent of what's coming in is what you hear but 40 percent of what you is coming into you is through the antenna of your yeah of your body and it's yeah it's it's so really that stuff really interests me it's cool stuff because we have like it's, it's interesting because if we think of Western science traditions, we've got the whole field of eco-psychology, right? And this return to nature and this return to um, uh, what is called the biophilia hypothesis, <clears throat> which I think, <clears throat> is that E.O. Wilson? I hope I'm saying that correctly. Um, <clears throat> and the biophilia hypothesis is this idea that as humans, we are attracted to the natural world because we are part of it. We are inextricably part of it. And part of our trauma response reflects, you know, the, the, the commodification of the natural world, the, the ca capitalist economics, all reflects a disconnection from our, 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 our connection with the natural world around us, this ability that we can be resonant tuning forks to, to the natural world. Like you said, when you go out in nature and you can feel the hum of the planet, I mean, you can, like there's something really powerful and potent about that. And the property that I happen to live on now is a really spiritual place. I mean, I go outside some days and I can feel like it's, it's, it's almost, it's much larger than me. And I feel something very potent, you know, that resonates in me in a very special way. Um, and the the animal life here is 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 really really powerful, you know, in terms of the wildlife that comes to where I live now, and and it's 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 interesting because there's this eco psychology sort of trend, um, and eco healing and eco retreats and this sort of return to nature, um, and and there's something like I said, what's human is not foreign to me. What's mammalian is not foreign to me. What's what's ecological is not foreign to me. And we can look at the disconnection in our relationships with animals, our relationships with each other. Our relationship with the planet is no different. The, the disconnection that we have, the, the fact that we have commodified resources, you know, it, it, it speaks to 
the, 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 the broken relationship that we have, we've objectified and made it subservient to us as opposed to where's the relationship. Um, you know, it's like, it's, it's, we've moved from, you know, what can I get out of, what, what, how can I be of service? How can I be a steward to what can I get out of this? You know, and that speaks to a disconnect. That speaks to a form of trauma. And where I, I think we're on the same page with this work is I will encourage people to go to the source wherever possible. You know, if we're going to learn about this stuff, I'm not saying not learning, not learning about it from eco-psychology. Like, obviously, you know, that, that's a valid field of study in and of itself. But there's something really powerful and potent about going and learning about this from an indigenous community, you know, and I'm using indigenous in the broad sense. This could be African indigenous communities. This can be, you know, First Nations or Inuit indigenous communities, you know, Nordic indigenous communities. I think of the Sami people in the north of Finland, for instance. You know, there's, there's all these sort of indigenous communities the world over in, in Australia as well, you know. Um, and, and so uh, South America, the Quechua tribes and, and so on. There's all these different um, indigenous communities all over. So I'm not trying to single anyone out or to broad stroke it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm using shorthand in my language, not to be disrespectful, but to recognize that there's a lot, you know, there's many, many voices, many peoples. And how, how can we go and learn from, from the source, you know, as opposed to, you know, yes, let's learn eco-psychology. Let, let's, let's, you know, there's something to be said about sort of the white plastic shamanism. There's something in there that can be taken, but I'm, my preference is, is let's not take from white plastic shamanism. Let's let's go and learn. Let's show respect and deference and acknowledgement of where the where these things come from, you know. And also recognize, you know, it's not we can't just go in and take either. That's what we've done for centuries. Is we've gone in and taken. So we want to tread really carefully. It's it's connecting with our birthright. As mammals, as humans, we all have this in us. I firmly believe, and. We want to be careful about the power, the power dynamics inherent in, in the learning or in the seeking of the teachings. You know, can we be humble about yeah, it? What, uh, yeah, what fascinates me about all that stuff mm. is like talking to Rupert Isaacson the other day. You know, he's been mm. to, uh, you know, went to Mongolia to the shamans, went to the Kalahari Desert to the shamans, went yeah. to Australia to the, uh, in the Daintree Rainforest to the Aboriginals there, and then to the Navajo in Arizona. And these are thousands of year old traditions and they had no communication with each other but they're all very mm -hmm. very similar so yeah. the, this yeah. knowledge has got to be coming from somewhere it's yes. the whole you know yeah. rupert sheldrake morphic resonance yeah, yeah yeah type thing and that's that's really what fascinates me is the whole collective consciousness that, that's 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 really what fascinates me these days yeah and you know I, I find and that stuff there is some truth to that like you know Carl Jung talked about that you know again we're you know white white male European Eurocentric kind of perspective on it but he's he's there's some truth to these bits and pieces you know there's there's something about there's something communal there's something that we all share if we go back far enough you know there's a reason why these things are showing up all over the place you know between cultures that have no that were thought to have had no communication or connection i mean who knows right but you know that we believe had no you know connection or communication and yet you know there's something there's something shared there there's something powerful well, there we know what communication and connection they didn't have they didn't have the u.s mail they didn't have internet they didn't have cell phones mm -hmm. but 
they had energy. They had energy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's interesting. I, I think you know this, but I went to uh, Florida a couple of years ago and mm. did a three-day ayahuasca ceremony with mm -hmm. a shaman from South America. Mm -hmm. And the South Americans, out of all the millions of plants in the South American jungle, mm -hmm. they get two and mix them together and it makes ayahuasca. And the indigenous people down there, if you ask them, how did you figure out which two to put together out of the millions of combinations, they say, the plants told us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, that there is just something to think about, isn't it? That's it. I mean, and that's it. That's the resonance, right? This is where it goes beyond what we were talking about earlier with scientism, right? Like these are indigenous ways of knowing. This is traditional knowledge holders, right? This is, this is where we're getting into a return to what I suspect we all had connection to at some point, you know, down each of our own lineages, right? Like, like, like Dr. Franz was saying, you know, he's like, if you're of Germanic descent, there's a strong tradition of indigenous peoples way back. If you go back to the original Germanic tribes back in Europe, I mean, they had their own indigenous traditions for that particular tribe of, or culture of people. Where did that go? You know, there, there was some, there's some really cool stuff there and we've lost it, you know, and, and I, there's a striving, I think, in each of us for a, a reconnection with some of that. And then, you know, we, we, we go to, you know, various places to try to find it and where I, I'm one of the chapters in my, my book that I'm working on, I have a whole section on looking at, um, you know, power and control dynamics, you know, and discrimination and privilege and all these kinds of things and anti-oppressive anti-racist practice um, and how and how is speciesism playing into that um, how do we take from other species like we take from other peoples you know we cherry pick and we take what we need and we do this with horses and and there's a, a piece in that chapter where I say you know um, how many of us have gone and gotten like you know a deck of shamanic cards or a deck of tarot cards you know that bring in animal spiritual meanings right like medicine messages of various animal species and and have drawn those cards to try to get some sort of meaning in our lives and because we're looking for something powerful we're looking for something meaningful but then by the same token we go outside and we harm the animals that are in our yard or we harm the nature that's in our front yard or we you know we 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 buy products from the store that have excessive packaging because we can't be bothered to take the meaning beyond the tarot card or the book that we read on shamanic meanings you know and and to me this is the commodification of it it's like okay yes that's all lovely that we have this drive in us to reconnect with source with tradition with indigenous knowledge however you want to classify indigeneity but but then it's like okay but are we actually living it or is this just this commodification Right, like I, I go and I go to an ayahuasca ceremony or I read a book on shamanic principles, but then I'm buying products that you know in, involve slave labor with brown people in some other country, or you know I'm you know like how, and I'm not trying to put this 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 on the individual because corporations have a big part to play in this. Obviously, corporations go unchecked and 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 we see we see that harm happening, right? Trauma, you know, in, in CEOs that have learned to rise to the top and in do so doing, they've commodified the natural world in order to get to the top. I mean, all this is reflective of trauma and disconnect, right? And it's like, okay, so if we're gonna do that, if we're gonna go and explore traditional knowledge from whatever people, can we can we can we do it right? You know, are we, or are we just using the bits and pieces that suit our purposes and then we go out into the world and we're 
engaging in harmful behavior. You know, it's, yeah, it's, I, I think, you know, for me, there's got to be a starting point mm-hmm. somewhere. Yeah. You know, you can't, you can't go, okay, I'm going to sell everything I own and I'm going to, you know, yeah. live under a piece of bark on the side of a hill. So I, I think, you know, I wouldn't want to be discouraging people from, from going there. But at some point in time, you, you reach, you may reach that point of, um, cognitive dissonance. You know, yeah. there's a book that I started reading about three years ago, four mm. years ago, maybe mm-hmm. kind of at the start of this journey I'm on. And it was called Equus Lost. Yes. Wonderful book. And I got halfway through that book and I couldn't read it anymore. Yeah. Because I kind of had this feeling, mm. if I finish this book, I may not ever ride a horse ever again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I still have it. Yeah. But, you know, it was getting a bit too real for me. I'm like, yeah. you know, I don't think... I don't think I can finish this book right now. But you feel, so there is the expansion and the contraction. That's right. There's Mm. the expansion and the contraction, right? So even in this conversation, my goal is not to discourage people from going and learning about from traditional knowledge holders, right? I'm not, I'm not discouraging that. I'm, I'm saying, can we do it with care? And can we be curious about taking it beyond just this feel good, fuzzy thing that we do but that doesn't translate into other areas of our lives. If we're truly going to embody this, it's like, wh- where can we find the edges of that expansion? So we're not going to do it perfectly. I don't do it perfectly, right? I make choices that are potentially harmful in some of the things that I buy. I try to be very mindful of those things, but I'm not doing it perfectly. But I think the goal is not to aim for perfection, but can we start to look beyond just the, oh, I do this here, but the rest of my world is not reflective of the thing that I did over here to feel good. You know, it's like, can we start to integrate it in a broader way? It doesn't mean that we're going to do it perfectly. I think if more of us were doing it imperfectly, we'd see a very different world, you know. So it's not, so that dissonance that's there is not in, it's like, oh, there's that, there's that, that, that contraction, right? It's like, oh yeah, no, no. It's like, oh, there's an opening and we want to be careful. And I think if we're feeling a little bit of contraction around this idea of expanding into indigenous, indigenous knowledge, that frankly is probably a good thing. You know, we Mm. want to proceed with caution. I'm not saying not to do it. You know, there's, there's a lot of good there and recognize that it's couched in layers upon layers of oppression and taking and genocide and, 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 you know, and it's just, it's, it's messy stuff. And so we want to proceed, um, with a lot of care and respect, you know, if we're going to go there, it's not that we, not that we can't, but that, how are we doing it? Right. Because it's powerful stuff. Like you were saying with, in your conversation with Rupert, there's some really amazing stuff there. There's some, there's stories I can't share. I'm not at liberty of sharing right now because the community I'm working in, we're not quite ready to do full press releases on the project that we're working on. So we're, we're kind of having to, I've been given permission to talk with you today about sort of the, these more general topics and the importance of acknowledging like Eurocentrism and colonization and how we have all these dynamics and such. But um, I, I can't, I can't fully speak to some of the power of it, but hopefully, hopefully sometime soon, you know, it's, 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 it's important to take great care as we move forward. So expansion will have a bit of contraction around it and that's okay. You know, it's not saying that the the contraction has to be a hundred percent. It's like, oh God, I'm doing this wrong. I shouldn't do it at all. Well, no, I'm not saying that. 
you know, that's that's too polarized. We're back to where we started from with right. the polarizations again, right? Mm -hmm. It's not so black and white. It's no, 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 it's kind of gray. It's like, yes, yes, show deference, show respect. Be curious about your own ancestry. Where were those traditions? Where were those lost along the way? Can you reconnect with those as you're learning about collective unconscious and all these sort of shared communal kinds of ideas? Because there is something there that is shared and communal and humanity-based, you know, and can we also be respectful for the the privilege, you know, that we have, right? right? And that's that's all I'm saying. So it's 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 just for me, it's a, it's a it's an important topic because if I am going to talk about these things, I I want my first sort of public acknowledgement of this to be very careful, um, just because right. I've seen too much appropriation happening, um, and there's a lot of appropriation happening by people who think they're doing the right thing and they go forward and, you know, and it's just it ends up being very harmful inadvertently, but still. Harmful. And so part of, uh, if we think of the legacy of, of how we've treated indigenous peoples through colonization, it's like, how can we reconcile? How can we reconcile that as we're also having curiosity and passion for the healing methods that they may, they may have, you know, and the, and the knowledge that they carry that is, you're not going to find through science. You know, like you said, the plants told me. Like, how do, you, how do you explain that? And it works. That's the wild thing, right? Like, this is all stuff that works. And this is why it's so funny for me because, like, things like somatic experiencing is like a science, a, a, a biomedical biophysics is part of Peter Levine's background. And so somatic experiencing comes out of a lot of this neurophysiology, but also based in a lot of these shamanic, quote-unquote, traditions and it's like, and the two feed each other, and they're not, in some ways, they're not that disconnected. They're not that disconnected. You know, it's just different language sometimes for similar ideas. You know, and so it's normal and natural to be drawn to it. Yeah, and I think for me, you know, I probably wasn't drawn to it at all when I had no feelings, when I had no... because. Yeah. Yeah, because the, that somatic experience is a big part of that. And mm. if you're in your head, you're not connected to that. You're mm -hmm. not, you know, you're disconnected. So, yeah. yeah, well, we've been babbling on here for quite a while. Um, <laughs> maybe we should wrap it up. Maybe before sure. we go, though, uh, yeah. Sarah, can you tell everybody how they can find out more about you, the stuff sure. you do, what you... Yeah when your book might be out, what your book might be called, things yeah. like that. Yeah, so the book title is still uh, a work in progress. The title I want is not the title that the publisher is, is suggesting, so I, I don't want to name <laughs> the title just yet, but uh, it is looking at trauma in horse-human relationships, trauma in horses, trauma in humans, and how do we navigate that space. Um, and it does come from an anti-oppressive, anti-racist perspective, anti-speciesist perspective, so uh, all those sort of forms of and layers of, of social justice awareness which to me is a cornerstone of trauma-informed awareness so that's uh, it's coming from that perspective um, my deadline was supposed to be September 15th and then I moved and had my big sort of series of quantum leaps that led me to come completely go off the face of the planet for a while um, my next deadline is March 31st we'll see how that goes <laughs> it's coming along though the manuscript is coming along I'm at about 350 pages at this point so it's coming um, How many words is that? I don't even begin to know. Don't oh, I have okay. no idea. I'd have to pull up my word document. Um, 
but it's it's quite a lot. Um, so it's coming. Uh, it is coming. I appreciate people's patience with me about that. Um, to keep in touch, uh, I have my personal website, Sarah Schlody at, uh, that's my email address, uh, sarahschlody.com. So S-A-R-A-H-S-C-H-L-O-T-E.com. And then there's equisoma.com as well, which is where my horse human stuff tends to live. So E-Q-U-U-S as in Sam, O-M-A.com. So equus and soma, um, soma meaning the body. So um, that's where and you that, can find uh, equisoma. Equisoma is where I got the the two quotes I read uh, in the introduction to this. The, so if you go on there and go under blog, all the blogs on there are just, uh, I think, Sarah, they're amazing. They're, they're some of the, gave me some of the biggest aha moments in all this stuff. So thank you for all that you're doing Lovely. for thank horses and humans. Thank you, Warwick. I appreciate your time and I'm so... Uh, encouraged and so excited about what you're doing and what you're putting out there too ever since we kind of connected a couple of years ago this has been a real fun real fun journey for me and I appreciate your process and your you being so open and vulnerable about it so thank you that's a gift to me as well and to horse owners and and horses everywhere so thank you for your path and well, walking it so authentically for, well thanks for being a part of my journey and kind of being a bit of my coach along the way happy to Awesome. Well, uh, you guys at home listening, thanks so much for joining us on the Journey Pod Journey On podcast, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Once again, Sarah, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Journey On podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 650 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights.